Chapter Thirty of Martin Eden by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty. On a beautiful fall day, a day of similar Indian summer to that which had seen their love declared the year before, Martin read his love cycle to Ruth. It was in the afternoon, and as before, they had ridden out to their favorite knoll in the hills. Now and again she had interrupted his reading with exclamations of pleasure, and now, as he laid the last sheet of manuscript with its fellows, he wanted her judgment. She delayed to speak, and at last she spoke haltingly, hesitating to frame in words the harshness of her thought. "'I think they are beautiful, very beautiful,' she said. "'But you can't sell them, can you? You see what I mean,' she said almost pleaded. This writing of yours is not practical. Something is the matter, maybe it is with the market, that prevents you from earning a living by it. And please, dear, don't misunderstand me. I am flattered and made proud. And all that. I could not be a true woman were it otherwise. That you should write these poems to me. But they do not make our marriage possible. Don't you see, Martin? Don't think me mercenary. It is love, the thought of our future, with which I am burdened. A whole year has gone by since we learned we loved each other, and our wedding day is no nearer. Don't think me immodest in thus talking about our wedding, for really I have my heart, all that I am, at stake. Why don't you try to get work on a newspaper, if you are so bound up in your writing? Why not become a reporter, for a while at least? It would spoil my style was his answer, in a low, monotonous voice. You have no idea how I've worked for style. But those storiettes, she argued, you called them hack-work. You wrote many of them. Didn't they spoil your style? No, the cases are different. The storiettes were ground out, jaded, at the end of a long day of application to style. But a reporter's work is all hack from morning till night, is the one paramount thing of life and it is a whirlwind life, the life of the moment, with neither past nor future, and certainly without thought of any style but repertorial style, and that certainly is not literature. To become a reporter now, just as my style is taking form, crystallizing, would be to commit literary suicide. As it is, every storyette, every word of every storyette, was a violation of myself, of my self-respect, of my respect for beauty, I tell you it was sickening. I was guilty of sin. And I was secretly glad when the markets failed, even if my clothes did go into pawn. But the joy of riding the love cycle, the creative joy in its noblest form, that was compensation for everything. Martin did not know that Ruth was unsympathetic concerning the creative joy. She used the phrase, it was on her lips he had first heard it, she had read about it, studied about it, in the university in the course of earning her bachelorship of arts, but she was not original, not creative, and all manifestations of culture on her part were but harpings of the harpings of others. "'May not the editor have been right in his revision of your sea-lyrics?' she questioned. "'Remember, an editor must have proved qualifications, or else he would not be an editor.' That's in line with the persistence of the established, he rejoined, his heat against the editor folk getting the better of him. 
What is, is not only right, but is the best possible. The existence of anything is sufficient vindication of its fitness to exist. To exist, mark you, as the average person unconsciously believes, not merely in present conditions, but in all conditions. It is their ignorance, of course, that makes them believe such rot. Their ignorance, which is nothing more nor less than the henidical mental process described by Weininger. They think they think, and such thinkless creatures are the arbiters of the lives of the few who really think. He paused, overcome by the consciousness that he had been talking over Ruth's head. "'I'm sure I don't know who this Weininger is,' she retorted. "'And you are so dreadfully general that I fail to follow you. What I was speaking of was the qualification of editors.' "'And I'll tell you,' he interrupted. "'The chief qualification of ninety-nine percent of all editors is failure. They have failed as writers. Don't think they prefer the drudgery of the desk and the slavery to their circulation and to the business manager to the joy of writing. They have tried to write, and they have failed. And right there is the cursed paradox of it. Every portal to success in literature is guarded by those watchdogs, the failures in literature. The editors, sub-editors, associate editors, most of them, and the manuscript readers for the magazines and book publishers, most of them, nearly all of them, are men who wanted to write and who have failed. And yet they, of all creatures under the sun the most unfit, are the very creatures who decide what shall and what shall not find its way into print. They, who have proved themselves not original, who have demonstrated that they lack the divine fire, sit in judgment upon originality and genius. And after them come the reviewers, just so many more failures. Don't tell me that they have not dreamed the dream and attempted to write poetry or fiction, for they have, and they have failed. Why, the average review is more nauseating than cod-liver oil. But you know my opinion on the reviewers and the alleged critics. There are great critics, but they are rare as comets. If I fail as a writer, I have proved for the career of editorship. There's bread and butter and jam, at any rate. Ruth's mind was quick, and her disapproval of her lover's views was buttressed by the contradiction she found in his contention. But, Martin, if that be so, if all the doors are closed as you have shown so conclusively, how is it possible that any of the great writers ever arrived? They arrived by achieving the impossible he answered. They did such blazing glorious work as to burn to ashes those who opposed them. They arrived by course of miracle, by winning a thousand-to-one wager against them. They arrived because they were Carlyle's battle-scarred giants who will not be kept down. And that is what I must do. I must achieve the impossible. But if you fail, you must consider me as well, Martin. If I fail... He regarded her for a moment, as though the thought she uttered was unthinkable. Then intelligence illumined his eyes. If I fail, I shall become an editor, and you will be an editor's wife. She frowned at his facetiousness, a pretty, adorable frown that made him put his arm around her and kiss it away. There, that's enough, she urged, by an effort of will withdrawing herself from the fascination of his strength. I have talked with father and mother. I never before asserted myself so against them. I demanded to be heard. I was very undutiful. They are against you, you know. 
but I assured them over and over of my abiding love for you, and at last father agreed if you wanted to, you could begin right away in his office. And then, of his own accord, he said he would pay you enough at the start so that we could get married and have a little cottage somewhere, which I think was very fine of him, don't you? Martin, with the dull pain of despair in his heart, mechanically reaching for the tobacco and paper, which he no longer carried, to roll a cigarette, muttered something inarticulate, and Ruth went on. Frankly, though, and don't let it hurt you, I tell you, to show you precisely how you stand with him, he doesn't like your radical views, and he thinks you are lazy. Of course I know you are not. I know you work hard. How hard, even she did not know, was the thought in Martin's mind. Well, then, he said, how about my views? Do you think they are so radical? He held her eyes and waited for the answer. I think them, well, very disconcerting, she replied. The question was answered for him, and so oppressed was he by the grayness of life that he forgot the tentative proposition she had made him to go to work. And she, having gone as far as she dared, was willing to wait the answer till she should bring the question up again. She had not long to wait. Martin had a question of his own to propound to her. He wanted to ascertain the measure of her faith in him, and within the week each was answered. Martin precipitated it by reading to her his The Shame of the Sun. "'Why don't you become a reporter?' she asked when he had finished. "'You love writing so, and I am sure you would succeed. You could rise in journalism and make a name for yourself.' There are a great number of special correspondents. Their salaries are large, and their field is the world. They are sent everywhere, to the heart of Africa like Stanley, or to interview the Pope, or to explore unknown Tibet. Then you don't like my essay, he rejoined. You believe that I have some show in journalism, but not in literature. No, no, I do like it. It reads well. But I am afraid it's over the heads of your readers. At least it is over mine. It sounds beautiful, but I don't understand it. Your scientific slang is beyond me. You are an extremist, you know, dear. And what may be intelligible to you may not be intelligible to the rest of us. I imagine it's the philosophic slang that bothers you, was all he could say. He was flaming from the fresh reading of the ripest thought he had expressed, and her verdict stunned him. No matter how poorly it is done, he persisted. Don't you see anything in it? In the thought of it, I mean. She shook her head. No, it is so different from anything I have read. I read Matterlink and understood him. His mysticism, you understand that? Martin flashed out. Yes, but this of yours, which is supposed to be an attack upon him, I don't understand. Of course, if originality counts. He stopped her with an impatient gesture that was not followed by speech. He became suddenly aware that she was speaking, and that she had been speaking for some time. "'After all, your writing has been a toy to you,' she was saying. "'Surely you have played with it long enough. It is time to take up life seriously, our life, Martin. Hitherto you have lived solely your own.' "'You want me to go to work?' he asked. "'Yes, father has offered.' I understand that, he broke in, 
but what I want to know is whether or not you have lost faith in me. She pressed his hand mutely, her eyes dim. In your writing, dear, she admitted in a half-whisper. You've read lots of my stuff, he went on brutally. What do you think of it? Is it utterly hopeless? How does it compare with other men's work? But they sell theirs, and you don't. That doesn't answer my question. Do you think that literature is not at all my vocation? Then I will answer. She steeled herself to do it. I don't think that you were made to write. Forgive me, dear. You compel me to say it. And you know I know more about literature than you do. Yes, you are a Bachelor of Arts, he said meditatively. And you ought to know. But there is more to be said, he continued, after a pause painful to both. I know that I have it in me. No one knows that so well as I. I know I shall succeed. I will not be kept down. I am afire with what I have to say in verse and fiction and essay. I do not ask you to have faith in that, though. I do not ask you to have faith in me, nor in my writing. What I do ask of you is to love me and have faith in love. A year ago I begged for two years. One of those years is yet to run, and I do believe, upon my honor and my soul, that before that year is run I shall have succeeded. You remember what you told me long ago, that I must serve my apprenticeship to writing. Well, I have served it. I have crammed it and telescoped it. With you at the end awaiting me, I have never shirked. Do you know, I have forgotten what it is to fall peacefully asleep. A few million years ago I knew what it was to sleep my fill, and to awake naturally from very glut of sleep. I am awakened always by an alarm clock. If I fall asleep early or late, I set the alarm accordingly. And this, and the putting out of the lamp, are my last conscious actions. When I begin to feel drowsy, I change the heavy book I am reading for a lighter one. And when I doze over that, I beat my head with my knuckles in order to drive away sleep. Somewhere I read of a man who was afraid to sleep. Kipling wrote the story. This man arranged a spur, so that when unconsciousness came, his naked body pressed against the iron teeth. Well, I have done the same. I look at the time, and I resolve that not until midnight, or not until one o'clock, or two o'clock, or three o'clock, shall the spur be removed. And so it rouls me awake until the appointed time. That spur has been my bedmate for months. I have grown so desperate that five and a half hours of sleep is an extravagance. I sleep four hours now. I am starved for sleep. There are times when I am light-headed from want of sleep, times when death, with its rest and sleep, is a positive lure to me, times when I am haunted by Longfellow's lines. The sea is still and deep, all things within its bosom sleep, a single step and all is o'er, a plunge, a bubble, and no more. Of course, this is sheer nonsense. It comes from nervousness, from an overwrought mind. But the point is, why have I done this? For you. To shorten my apprenticeship. To compel success to hasten. And my apprenticeship is now served. I know my equipment. I swear that I learn more each month than the average college man learns in a year. I know it, I tell you. 
but were my need for you to understand not so desperate, I should not tell you. It is not boasting. I measure the results by the books. Your brothers today are ignorant barbarians compared with me and the knowledge I have wrung from the books in the hours they were sleeping. Long ago I wanted to be famous. I care little for fame now. What I want is you. I am more hungry for you than for food, or clothing, or recognition. I have dreamed of laying my head on your breast and sleeping an eon or so, and the dream will come true ere another year is gone. His power beat against her, wave upon wave, and in the moment his will opposed her most, she felt herself most strongly drawn toward him. The strength that had always poured out from him to her was now flowering in his impassioned voice, his flashing eyes, and the vigor of life and intellect surging in him. And in that moment, and for the moment, she was aware of a rift that showed in her certitude, a rift through which she caught sight of the real Martin Eden, splendid and invincible. And as animal trainers have their moments of doubt, so she, for the instant, seemed to doubt her power to tame this wild spirit of a man. And another thing, he swept on, you love me, but why do you love me? The thing in me that compels me to write is the very thing that draws your love. You love me because I am somehow different from the men you have known and might have loved. I was not made for the desk and counting-house, for petty business squabbling and legal jangling. Make me do such things, make me like those other men, doing the work they do, breathing the air they breathe, developing the point of view they have developed, and you have destroyed the difference, destroyed me destroyed the thing you love. My desire to write is the most vital thing in me. Had I been a mere clod, neither would I have desired to write, nor would you have desired me for a husband. But you forget, she interrupted, the quick surface of her mind glimpsing a parallel. There have been eccentric inventors, starving their families while they sought such chimeras as perpetual motion. Doubtless their wives loved them and suffered with them and for them, not because of, but in spite of their infatuation for perpetual motion. True, was the reply. But there have been inventors who were not eccentric, and who starved while they sought to invent practical things, and sometimes, it is recorded, they succeeded. Certainly I do not seek any impossibilities. You have called it achieving the impossible, she interpolated. I spoke figuratively. I seek to do what men have done before me, to write and to live by my writing. Her silence spurred him on. To you, then, my goal is as much a chimera as perpetual motion, he demanded. He read her answer in the pressure of her hand on his, the pitying mother hand for the hurt child. And to her, just then, he was the hurt child the infatuated man, striving to achieve the impossible. Toward the close of their talk, she warned him again of the antagonism of her father and mother. "'But you love me,' he asked. "'I do, I do,' she cried. "'And I love you, not them, and nothing they can do can hurt me.' Triumph sounded in his voice. "'For I have faith in your love, not fear of their enmity.' All things may go astray in this world, but not love. 
Love cannot go wrong, unless it be a weakling that faints and stumbles by the way. End of chapter 30